A lot has certainly changed in just a quarter century since the communist governments of the former Soviet bloc nations started to fall like dominoes in 1989. Considering all the fear and expense that went into the Cold War, I'm glad there's museums and exhibits that we can visit to this day that show us what life was like back then, behind what was called the Iron Curtain. Some of the exhibits preserve a certain nostalgia for the 1950s and 60s. Some displays take you to places where atrocities were committed in the name of the state. To help us locate communist-era sites in our travels, we're joined now by guests who grew up during those transition years in the former Soviet satellites. Now, they make their living as independent tour guides, showing Western visitors around their countries. We're joined by George Farkas from Hungary, Katerina Svobodova from the Czech Republic, and Beata Makomis, who grew up in Poland. Welcome, comrades, to Travel with Rick Steves. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. It was a very strange thing for me as I was traveling in Eastern Europe. I couldn't find the museums I wanted, and and suddenly there's these fascinating museums. George from Hungary, how do you attribute the fact that they did not have these museums, and now you've got powerful museums that tell the story? Because I think we went through the changes, the communism fell, the wall fell, and uh, now we were actually able to reconsider history and actually display it, present it the way it actually was. Therefore, we uh, were able to put together the past and um, put it into a museum, which we're very proud that we have those things in a museum now, not living them day by day, which I think is excellent. And we're very proud of the fact that we didn't just put it behind and wanted to erase it, because I think it's something that we definitely have to show to the generations following us that this is what happened and this is what we don't want to happen ever again. For instance, you're from Hungary, and outside of Budapest, the capital city, there's an amazing park filled with statues. Right. This must be a beautiful opportunity for somebody to explain to their children what life was like 30 years ago. Right. Grab their hands and walk out. Have a a day trip. The park actually is very exciting in a way that you go into this field, and basically the size of the park already demonstrates what the uh, Russian era was trying to force on on our country. So you go into this massive park, and um, in a U-shape area, you have these statues, one after the other, all sort of showing the strength of communism and the, the message what communism was all about. And I think it's very interesting to learn how those statues got there, because they were all used to standing around us in our parks, by our house, just by our street. And then once the change came, it enabled us to take them down. No one was forcing us to stare at those ever again. And the people didn't want to have them ever again. But the the very good thing, which I find, is that they did not destroy them, but they said, let's collect them all and take them to a park and allow the future generation to see them. And if you ever come to Hungary and Budapest and you have a chance, I wouldn't say this would be the first thing to go to, but if you have like a little bit longer time, do go out, visit the park, and by the park, you'll see an amazing little movie on how the era was actually training people to become a spy. Mm -hmm. So you have a full movie, educational movie that was put together by the era, teaching people how to spy on each other. How to spy on their neighbors. Right. On their sisters, brothers, neighbors, anybody. What's the name of the park again? Statue Park, Memento Park. Statue Park or Memento Park. And you've got, there must be 50 statues. They're all propaganda statues. Definitely. Social realism, is that what we call it? Yeah. When you were a child, they were on the main square, keeping you down, celebrating the communist totalitarian system. And today, they're in this sort of fantasy world where they're ranting at each other instead of keeping the people down. Exactly. Wow. 
Katka, in the Czech Republic, are there some sites that help us better understand the, the communist period? For the case of Prague, I would say that we have great statues, but not really those what George was describing. But we have by one local artist, uh, he built such a monument opposite the National Street in Prague, but it's very important to the times of 1989, the Velvet Revolution. So across the bridge there, we have the staircase with uh, bodies made from iron or some kind of metal. And the concept of this, it's uh, the further you go, there are like seven of them, the further you go, the less of the body you see. And that is something about like how the people were broken during the times, either mentally or physically, because it kind of reflects also the people who got to prison and sometimes we never saw them again. So mm -hmm. they kind of disappeared. So that's why like step by step you go to see this. Uh, sort of the individual uh, is rubbed out. Yeah, that's one thing that's like what is outside. Then we have also a museum. Mm -hmm. It's uh, much more intimate in a way. To me, when I stepped there first time, not knowing much about it, I just wanted to check it, see it. Uh, it was like I stepped into my grandfather's garage, the first thing. So all the things I saw there, it was like at home, you know, like, or, or then I saw classroom, the same kind of a desk I was sitting when I was going to school learning Russian and all that. So that was quite amazing. And that's the museum of, it's called the Museum uh, of, communism. of Communism. in Prague. Right in downtown Prague. You, you yeah. can't miss it. Really. The interesting fact maybe is that it was opened by one American, you know, because he collected those things. I know him. So, so, so these are museum pieces just from 50 years ago. That's right, yes. He wow. collected it from his friends, like those new Czech friends, and he put it into the museum. So and I find it interesting that it's located between a McDonald's and a casino. That's what I was going to say. <laughs> that's the most, yeah, greatest location found for that. And Beata, what about in Poland? How can you gain an appreciation of the struggles of the Polish people through communism with your sightseeing in Poland? I think one museum worth uh, mentioning is the newest museum open in Poland. It's in Gdańsk, and it's Solidarity Museum. And doesn't only focus on the Solidarity movement, but also shows how the life looked like under communism. Uh, you can actually enter into um, a store, a grocery store, where there is nothing on the shelves besides the uh, vinegar, and empty meat uh, hooks on the wall. You can visit cars that were, well, not many of them back then, but cars that we were using during that period. So, so the reality of the life that kept the people down that the Solidarity Movement actually rose up against. Correct. And the museum is located actually on the site of the shipyard where Lech Walesa and the Solidarity Movement uh, started. Mm -hmm. Must be very uh, emotional for a Polish person to go there. It's nostalgic, nostalgic, I think. If I would go there with my parents, they would tell me that probably half of the things that I see there, they owned exactly the same style. Wow, um, this is tangible history. Yes. <laughs> this is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about how we can learn about the communist period with new museums that are cropping up all over Eastern Europe now that people are free to talk about it. We're joined by three Eastern European guides, George Farkas from Hungary, Katarina Svobodova from Czech Republic, and Beata Makamis from Poland. George, in Budapest, there's a museum called the House of Terror. Yes. Can you explain that museum? It's a very controversial place, uh, sitting on the main square, on the main street, which again um, leads back to the turn of the century, and the building used to be the headquarters of the uh, young Hungarian Nazis, uh, the Aerocross Party, uh, that was put in charge during the Second World War when uh, Hitler realized that uh, Hungary is just about to, to step out and having an idea to step out of uh, the war from uh, the German side. And then um, it became to be the headquarters of the AVH, the uh, Hungarian Secret Service. 
of the Communist Party? Of the Communist so Party. So this was the evil place where you're tortured under the Nazis and exactly. under the communists. Exactly. The same building. The very and same building. As a museum. And I think the, the greatest twist to it was that uh, it got deserted. And then uh, when the changes came, obviously investors were rushing in and they got the building. They wanted to turn it over to be sort of a startup office. And then they realized that no Hungarians want to enter because it has such a a negative feeling to the building. So obviously the business went bankrupt and then the building later was picked up with the idea of creating the House of Terror, which now actually walks you through the double occupation, the Russian era, how you changed, how you became to be a spy. There's a full-size Russian tank once you step in, oil dripping down the side of it, LCD screen TVs, very modern, and then you finish up your visit down at the bottom with the torturing rooms and the execution places and you read the names of the lost ones and so forth. So it's a very emotional museum. But at the same time, again, I'd like to say that it's a great place to have to teach the future generation of what had happened in the past. It is so important that we share this with the younger generation so they can I, I defend that, freedom. Yeah, exactly. You call it the double occupation? Double occupation. What does that mean? Well, it was the time when um, the uh, Germans were already in, the Russians were coming in, and then uh, uh, you really had to prove which side you were on. I mean, it's very interesting. Once you go down and you go into the cells and then you see the name of the lost ones, uh, one would say actually that this very person was uh, imprisoned by the Germans and executed by the Russians. Oh, my goodness. And then you're thinking, so which side was he on? He was Hungarian. He had to be removed from the society because it was trouble. Because in each of your countries, you had a Nazi occupation and then you had liberation. And you have an Independence Day, really, which was celebrating the entry of your next occupation. Right. Yeah. George, you mentioned the, the controversy of having this building where people were tortured, whether under Nazis or communists. Again, all over Eastern Europe, there are new sites where we can learn from this very difficult couple of generations of history. I was just in Leipzig, and they have their Stasi Museum there. And I learned that a third of the people in Eastern Germany were officially informants. Right. One third of the population. And after freedom came to Eastern Germany, people had the right, the privilege to look into their files that the government had on them. But many people chose not to because they didn't really want the heartache of knowing which one of their family members and loved ones and dear friends was actually informing on them. Right. Is there that same dynamic in your countries at all? Oh, yes. As soon as they opened up the files, many files were actually put to be the government made it top secret for the next 20 years or 40 years or 50 years automatically. So obviously the ones that are still on a political platform might still be on those files that no one have access to read about them. Uh, my fiancé's father used to be a doctor, so um, they um, actually had quite an access to the system and um, they would go down to the Lake Balaton to have a good time and all the doctors were there and the professor was there and, you know, the, the head doctor and so forth. And once the files were open, they all learned that the one that was the host was the one that was putting down information on them. Yet, we must understand that many times these reported informations were absolutely useless because the question is how one became to be a reporter and what was on the borderline of becoming a reporter. You were put to the corner and say, either you become one or you lose your job. You lose your family, you lose your access for the rest of the world and so forth. So one would decide to do so and then they would just start writing up silly things that are useless. So the we government's sat, collecting useless oh, information. Oh, yeah. They would just say, oh, we sat around the fireplace and two had red T-shirts on and we had five beers and we were laughing about this and that. And that went into the file and it got... And then they could tick the box. 
saying that I've done what I was requested to and that they could carry on with their career. Plus, their families were not um, disclo- discriminated, uh, discriminated so you had uh, from the, schooling, from any other things. So you, the government gave you an impossible choice, really. Either you could right. not play the game and your whole family would never get the opportunities in right. education or you play And the I'm game. sure there would be many disagreeing with this uh, because you have a choice mm, yeah. to say no, but then you it's have to evaluate when the, when the what exactly. Is there. One of the most poignant things for me was in the house of Terran Budapest. I remember at the end, they've got all these photographs of all of these people who were in the secret police. Many of them were dead, but many of them were still alive, living down the street. Right. Yeah. And, and Hungary has to live with these people who were the animals of the other regime, and they're still alive right there. And talk about baggage. America deals with baggage. Eastern Europe has a lot of baggage, too. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking about museums that help us better understand what Eastern Europe has gone through. We've been joined by George Farkas from Hungary, Katarina Svobodova from Czech Republic, and Beata Makomas from Poland. Katke, if there's one place you could take me to really understand what the Czech people have gone through as they, they finally won their freedom, where would you take me? Well, then I would take you to the Wenceslas Square because that's the main square in my city What is uh, tied with uh, both 1968 and 1989 years. So this is the big square in Prague. Mm-hmm. I would take you also around a little bit to the National Street. We would basically trace back the Velvet Revolution also, you know, maybe day to day and so, as this is what I remember. But I also do remember 68 just because of my dad. So the Velvet Revolution was 89, 89. when you finally won your freedom, but mm-hmm. you're talking about 68, 68. which was the, uh, the sort of the beginning of that in some ways. That's right, the Prague Spring, when some of our government officials started to do reforms. And of course, once the Russians got to know that something's happening in Czechoslovakia, without any prior notice, they sent uh, about 600 tanks. Uh, It was just crazy invasion from five different directions. And um, I think that local people were at the beginning, you know, very enthusiastic about the changes. That's what I know a lot from my father, because he himself was there in 68 as a 20-year-old boy. He told me, you know, how people all kept together that moment and they just kept going. But then eventually, after a couple of weeks, they basically just, uh, you know, turned back again and uh, went back to their lives. And because of all that, we have one very, very emotional site on the Wenceslas Square. That's a place where a boy actually of the age of like my father burned himself because of the fact that people stopped, you know, fighting against the Stalinist terror and all that. in 68, the Czech people rose up, the Russian tanks came in, the people spent their energy, and they went back to work, and then this young man burned himself to death to rally the Czech people on. Yeah, his name was Jan Palach. I would just say that maybe, you know, not to blame just the Russians, because Mm -hmm. sometimes people kind of simplify this, Mm -hmm. because I think we should really say that it was the Warsaw Pact in five countries. Speaking about Hungary, Poland, you know, we are here, uh, from that former Warsaw mm-hmm. Pact, but that time we Czechs were on the other side. But the truth is that the Russians stayed definitely longest. I mean, all mm-hmm. the other um, soldiers were called back while the, the Soviets, uh, stayed. Soviets stayed until 1890s. Yeah. Uh, George, what's one image that you would have from, from Hungary that you would share to remember what Hungarians have gone through? I would take you down to the corner of the uh, Parliament Square, Koshut Square, and uh, we have in a statue Budapest. in Budapest, and we have a statue of Imre Nagy, who became to be the leader of 1956. Imre uh, Nagy. Imre Nagy. Yeah, and he was the sort of charismatic communist leader of Hungary right. that really was groundbreaking and standing up against the Kremlin in Moscow. Exactly. So that's what I would take you to. And then there is a statue of him, there is the parliament, and then um, I would walk you through the events of 1956 and then carry on telling you what 
how 1956 and then I would probably walk you through the events of that and then um, sort of um, outline what happened from that point all the way till 1989 in Big Steps where we became to be uh, again initiative country to break the Iron Curtain and start the fall of communism. And Beata, in Poland, where would you take me to appreciate how the Polish people have triumphed with that very difficult reality? I think I would take you to a church on a Sunday afternoon, after the afternoon mass, so you can see the, the people. I would try to make you realize that this wasn't the case during communism. Churches were portrayed as gathering places for people conspiring against the government. And nowadays you can go to church and pray. But also you can go to church and see tourists from all over the world visiting that place. It's just mind-opening to see people praying and visiting at the same time. So I think I would take it to church. Beautiful. In fact, I was just in Poland, and the experience in the churches that are so alive with Polish people and people from around the world, and the pride that Poland uh, brought us, Pope John Paul II, who's now Saint John Paul. Absolutely. And we had uh, the priest, his last name was Popiewuszko, who died in the name of freedom. He was killed right outside of my city, uh, Toruń. The uh, secret police caught him and drowned him in the lake. Um, what year was that? Um, I believe it was 1985. 85, yeah. So this is courage. This is hope. This is people standing up for their freedom. And it's interesting that we had 56 in Hungary, 68 in the Czech Republic, and then the late 1980s in Poland. And today, 25 years later, we have freedom. We're working on it, but we have come a long way. Beata, George, Katka, thank you very much for sharing your country's struggles and your country's triumphs. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. His classic, Europe Through the Back Door, teaches the skills of smart travel. At Rick Steves' online travel store, you'll also find guidebooks and phrasebooks for Eastern Europe and every other corner of the continent. To learn more about Rick's books, visit the travel store at ricksteves.com.